Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Well, last week we discussed the IPCC and climate change and the whole controversy. And this week we will discuss the same issue, but with a new guest and lots of interesting new angles. Our guest today is a, uh, one of my favorite guests in the past on this show, Dr. Patrick Michaels, who's director of the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute, uh, according to his bio, and I'm sure according to reality. Michaels is a past president of the American Association of State Climatologists and was program chair for the Committee on Applied Climatology of the American Meteorological Society. He taught environmental sciences at the University of Virginia uh, for 30 years, and uh, he's actually been a, a contributing au um, author to the IPCC, which gives him an interesting experience given that he's very critical of it. Um, one of the great things about Pat, which I'm not sure we'll get into today, is he has an amazing Al Gore impression. So if we don't get to it, make sure you listen to the episode, I believe it's Power Hour Episode 8. It's around there on his book, Climate Coup, which, by the way, is very, very much worth reading. Uh, and he does a great Al Gore imitation there, plus discusses uh, tons of interesting things. So without further ado, we'll have Patrick Michaels on, and I'll be with you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Dr. Patrick Michaels of the Cato Institute to talk about the IPCC AR5. Pat, welcome back to Power Hour. Hey, good to be with you. Now, you're not the most mild-mannered climate scientist in the world, and I believe I read that you described the latest the IPCC as acting like a treed cat. Is that an accurate quote? Yeah, so you know what a treed cat does. Um, instead of closing its eyes and climbing down the trunk of the tree, uh, what a treed cat will do is it will climb to ever higher and thinner branches and yowl even louder and louder as it goes up the tree. And that seems what, to be what the IPCC is doing with regard to climate change. You know, despite the fact that there's all kinds of information out there in the scientific literature showing that the sensitivity of temperature to carbon dioxide, that's the amount of warming you would get for a nominal doubling of atmospheric carbon dioxide, the literature showing that that the sensitivity is less than was previously assumed, uh, they are still going out on this limb and predicting, you know, that we're saying that we have to do something about atmospheric carbon dioxide emissions. They lowered their lower limit for 21st century warming by only a half a degree. Um, they should have actually trimmed the upper limit a whole lot, but they didn't. So, it's almost like the new report is functioning on a different planet than Earth. 
Well, so to go, to go back to the treed cat, now what what exactly is the motive? Why does the cat go to the more precarious place? Is it that he's he's afraid of the ground, he's afraid of the fall, so he's somehow doubling down, or what? Precisely. The cat is afraid uh, to go down to the ground in the same way that that uh, the ITCC is is afraid to lose face by seriously backing down its temperature change. So let's let's uh, I, I like this tree metaphor more and more as we go. So I'm going to use that at least one or two more questions. Um, where you know what what are the lower rungs of the tree look like? Because in in previous assessment reports, if we go back 2007, 2002, 1997, uh, the IPCC seemed to be at least in the public eye in a less precarious position. So where where was it back then compared to now in terms of the data, or is it just that there's or was it in just as bad a position but nobody acknowledged it? Well, no, it, it, they predicted uh, warmings that really are pretty similar to what's in this report, but in this case, there's science cropping up all over the place since January of 2011, showing that the sensitivity of temperature is less than they are assuming in their models. Let's, let's look at it in terms of hard numbers. The literature that I'm referring to says the sensitivity of temperature to doubling carbon dioxide is about two degrees Celsius or maybe a little bit less. Now we've already had probably at least a half a degree C of warming that's related to CO2. We've had a total warming of about eight tenths of a degree Celsius. Some of it's not related to CO2. Uh, that would leave you with maybe a degree and a half to a degree and a quarter for doubling carbon dioxide, which will occur uh, late this century. But the full temperature response, however, is not realized until long after that. That leads you to a, a rate of warming that's really pretty modest and not really appreciably different than what we've seen over the course of the last 100 years. Um, but the UN has stuck with the very high rates of warming, the very, very high levels of sea level rise, and it seems to me that that they just seem to be incapable of admitting that they overpredicted this and that they were very alarmist. Um, they also, there was clear political pressure to do things like that. Um, so in terms of in terms of that, yeah, because I, I I mean I have nowhere near the comprehensiveness of study of this that, that you do, but I just noticed in previous articles that uh, it's it seems like they've just very much shied away from acknowledging the actual temperature data of the past fifteen or seventeen years. Yes, yes, there there was language in the uh, final draft of the summary for policymakers that basically said, we really kind of have a hard time explaining why it hasn't warmed in the last, you know, 15 years, 16 years, 17 years. It's one of those numbers, depending upon which global temperature record you're looking at. And uh, one of the reasons it was said in the final draft was that the sensitivity of temperature to carbon dioxide may have been overestimated. Well, when dra that draft came up for adoption, in the last week in September in Stockholm, that language was pretty much written out of the report. And that was done at the behest 
of certain member nations that really thought that putting that in the report would have the effect of um, taking people's attention away from this problem and focusing focusing it on something that wasn't global warming. Of course, they were correct about that. But <laughs> when science, when governments start mucking around with documents produced by scientists who themselves have a, have a predilection to say it's worse than we thought, if you know what I mean, uh, when when the political process starts blatantly interfering with that, I'd say uh, you just might as well not even consider this a serious report. Well, I mean, you've done a lot of interesting work. I mean, you have a whole book almost on the politicization of this, and then in, in climate coup, which is what we discussed on the last last time you were here. There's a lot of, of really uh, interesting stuff, and and the first live presentation I ever saw of yours, you had a picture of the State Science Institute from from Atlas Shrugged. Um, so yeah. you, you've really stressed how this is a a political movement, and this this just seems like the most blatant thing because what on earth would an assessment report tell you besides the most relevant hard data that has changed between last time and now, and yet that's buried because the absolute is not inform people about science, but pursue this political goal, which would be undermined if they were informed about science. Well, you have to understand that the IPCC was chartered in 1987 with the uh, charge that it was to provide the technical background scientific background for a, quote, possible global treaty on greenhouse gases, or that's as close a quote as I can get out of memory. In other words, they were basically told, hey, we want you to uh, give us information that may allow us to, to produce something like the Kyoto Protocol on global warming or the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which it did. So that was their charge. And remember that the scientists who participate in the IPCC, the, the senior ones, the guys who run it, are all chosen by their governments. Now, you'd have to be completely naive to think that politics isn't going to enter into that process. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's it's the point you just mentioned, everyone should pay a huge amount of attention to, that it, it has a political goal and it has, a, it has an ideological conclusion buried into the institution. I mean, why not? You could just as well have an institution uh, whose job is to produce annual reports about all the beneficent effects of CO2 in the atmosphere, the beneficent effects of warming. I mean, that would be just as much prejudging the outcome, wouldn't it? Sure. You could also produce that report, and it would contain an awful lot of information that was not in the IPCC report. Uh, and probably if you took the two reports together and divided by two, you probably get something pretty close to reality. Yeah, and again, it's 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 very frustrating as a as a non-specialist in this. It might be frustrating for specialists too, but just as a non-specialist, you want to know, okay, what's the spectrum of evidence? What are the different theories? And yet you have this political movement whose whole investment is pretending there's only one approach and, and that filters out data that doesn't support it. I mean, it, it very much to me resembles a modern day eugenics movement, that movement and its government organizations, it wasn't devoted toward to presenting all the information about genetics. It was devoted toward distorting whatever information it could to get to ram a political conclusion down people's throats. Well, uh, I can tell you that you're not the first person that has noticed this. 
Uh, I think the bottom line is that when government becomes the monopoly provider of research funding, very bad things can happen because to get that funding, you have to support what the government supports. Now, you, I want to ask you about this in, in a little more detail because you, you were at the University of Virginia for quite a long time, right? So you've, you've been firsthand in an environment with scientists who are functioning in a world where the government has this monopoly power and where this is this political movement. What sorts of effects did you notice uh, on your colleagues and maybe on yourself? Well, when I would write op-eds saying, you know, there's something a little bit overblown about this issue of climate change or something like that, I would see them uh, thrown on the departmental chairman's desk with big felt-tip pens saying, what are we going to do about this? Meaning him, meaning me. Uh, <laughs> and so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very pleasant. See, the problem is the roots of political correctness at the university uh, are not simply the philosophical predilections of the faculty. They are due in no small part to the fact that the modern public university is addicted to federal research funding. Well, actually, it applies to private schools, too. But, you know, when you apply for a million dollars for global warming research money, uh, the university tax on 50% overhead. That's for the uh, providing the facilities and, you know, the electricity to run the facilities, et cetera. Of course, it's not 50% of the total value. It's a much smaller value than that. And the rest of that money is dispersed throughout the university. <clears throat> the Commonwealth of Virginia holds, for example, that when the federal government gives a grant to University of Virginia, that as soon as that money is dispersed to the university, it, the federal government no longer has any say over where it goes with regard to that overhead money. It belongs to the state. It goes to the university. What really happens is the research overhead from the science departments and the engineering school winds up paying the professors in Germanic languages <laughs> who can't get the student traffic to justify their salaries. So the money is transferred from the science and technology departments to the humanities departments, which makes the university dependent upon the government, and lo and behold, makes the faculty think that big government and big state science, if you will, is just a wonderful thing. I'm just, I realized that I never thought about exactly what political correctness means. Is that, is that the origin of it, that it has to be correct for the government it's, for those purposes? I, I think the, the fact that universities are wards of the federal government is certainly one cause of political correctness and one that people really don't want to talk about because it's so obvious. You know, our, our greener friends, I mean, look at, look at Mike Mann from Penn State University, uh, thinks that the reason that we don't have a, a you know, real serious global warming policy is because of a small band of skeptical scientists funded by the evil Koch brothers. Well, let me tell you something. If that's the case, we should have policy 
uh, a complete interventionist policy because the amount of money that the federal government throws at global warming compared to whatever any private individual or foundation throws at it is orders of magnitude, count them, five orders of magnitude higher. That's right. For every $10,000 that the government spends, industry might spend $1. Yeah, if only... I mean, I wish the Koch brothers had more influence that way. I mean, given 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 that the government, as you said, does have uh, a monopoly. And one thing people wonder about with with scientists in universities, and this is why I'm curious about your experience, is they wonder, well, why if Pat Michaels is right, why isn't everyone like Pat Michaels? Why isn't everyone standing up? Can you talk about some of the incentives or disincentives people have with regard to standing up, maybe not just funding, but other things? Uh, well, rumor has it that the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, was pretty adamant that the university find a way to get Michaels to leave. So that kind of happens. Those stories kind of get out. People say, whoa, look what happened to Pat Michaels. He spoke out. He's no longer uh, professor of environmental sciences or Virginia state climatologist. Uh, uh, they neglect to point out that he's making twice as much as what he made as a university guy, but, you know, it's a minor detail, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, but it, it is, I mean, I can imagine that it also seems like it, it, it took, I mean, you had to expend quite a bit of effort and, and, I mean, you know, now you work at a policy institute, but you didn't always, and it seems like you and Richard Lindzen and other people had to go quite a bit out of your way to fight this stuff. It's not like the Koch brothers were just, you know, handing out hundred thousand dollar bills or something like that. It seems like no. it, it takes a lot and, and, to stand and, up. And the odd part is that the Koch uh, foundation or whatever, they avoid global warming like the plague. They don't want to go anywhere near it. Uh, so it's not, you know, it's not, not, they're not even doing it. That's the, that's the funny part. And yet the myth continues to persist. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I just just uh, and and of course the only thing now, I mean, the narrative is the Koch brothers have spent billions of dollars or whatever on denying global warming, but then they accidentally paid Mueller some money at Berkeley, and then and now he proved global warming uh, conclusively. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, that's that's all kind of a little bit of an exaggeration too. Uh, the uh, this guy Mueller at Berkeley decided he was going to reanalyze the surface temperature records that everybody and their uncle was already analyzed. Uh, and lo and behold, he got pretty much about the same temperature change that everybody and their uncle got. Now, I'm completely shocked about this. But, uh, uh, you know, if you can get somebody to pay you money to reinvent the wheel, hey, that's nice work if you can get it. Yeah, I mean, it just, it, I, I remember, it's just fascinating how you know, you look at that Berkeley Earth site and it's just the same kind of thing. And they even show their temperature records against everyone else's. And yet the the value of it rhetorically is is this very vague idea. Of, I mean, isn't isn't that the point of it for, for the other side? Not the very that, vague idea that, that the, the Koch Foundation was one of uh, six or seven financial supporters of this research. Uh, let me, may I rephrase that? That the Koch Foundation was one of the six or seven financial supporters of this very overpriced research. <laughs> uh, I didn't do their due diligence. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh. I don't know, Pat, I don't know how you can be criticizing 
the Koch brothers, since, I mean, they're obviously the source of every, you know, everyone's funding and they're going to, you know, you're going to get off to the Charles, reservation. I talk to Charles and David, I talk to Charles and David every day, sometimes twice a day. And we all go over uh, what I'm going to lie about. Yeah. Don't you know I, that? I mean, you guys all have a lot of time for that sort of thing, I'm sure. So. Yeah, right. Sure. No, please. <laughs> um, yeah, it just bugs me. So those guys are demonized for the two evils of promoting liberty and refining oil. That's, that's what yeah, you do to get demonized in this culture. <sighs> so um, just in terms of your own thinking, because I really love the, the angle that you focused on in terms of, of public choice and incentives. Uh, have, have you has anything new struck you in the last five years since the last uh, reporter or even this about how the government and international monopoly works? Well, what's what struck me as interesting um, was the release of the climate gate emails in the late 2009, which showed uh, graphically what I had been talking about for a decade and a half that things were not all really ship-shape and right in the world of the global warming scientific uh, research literature, that editors were being bullied for publishing anything that might deviate from some ideological uh, conclusion. And uh, not only that, we have to have the University of Wisconsin, quote, reopen, end quote, my Ph.D. dissertation, because I had an error in it that I didn't have. In fact, I did exactly uh, the opposite of what they purported I'd do. <laughs> anyway, that kind of stuff uh, I thought was going to make things a little bit more open. But you know what? It didn't. I think the, 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 the research community is uh, less inclusive. The academic publishers, having seen the climate gate emails, we're now even more cowed into submission by this particular gang of bullies. It didn't get better. It actually got worse. I mean, one thing that just as a layman struck me about these things is the emails are so blatant in terms of these are things you would never say uh, that just seem completely inappropriate. And yet, you know, Penn State comes out with this, quote, investigation and man is exonerated and whatnot. And it's the why, same. When, why was man exonerated? Man was exonerated, according to Penn State, because he gets a lot of government money, so therefore he must be okay. That was basically what they said. Well, so but why why is it that people still? I'm not. Hey, Alex, I'm not smart enough to make that up. Okay. <laughs> just ask the other guys. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's just. Why is it that, that people are still, it's like they have evidence that the authorities are doing something corrupt, and yet then another authority says, oh, they weren't doing anything corrupt, and they take that authority. And, and, it, and everyone, I read a recent article that just said, uh, oh, Rolling, St and Rolling Stone, that great scientific authority, they just said, here's one of the myths that climate gate was a problem. Actually, man was totally exonerated. This was a lie by, I mean, they just, but even though it's been in front of our eyes, even though everyone has read those emails. So, 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 Alex, would we expect that a university, Penn State, being one of the greatest collectors of federal research funding uh, uh, in the entire United States, and is very, very good at that, that they are going to come in on the side of 
uh, our guy who you all funded that much maybe kind of was a little bit out of line when they were talking about threatening journal editors and things like that. Do you expect them to say that, to admit to that? Why? They're addicted to the money. They, don't, they haven't gone through step one to admit that we have a problem. I guess I'm less surprised by that. I mean, I wouldn't even say I'm surprised. There's just something remarkable about it that that the the people following it, so the, the true believers are so, the people aren't getting money, but who just have their self-esteem wound up in this movement, you know, a lot of liberals uh, mostly, they will just, they'll see these emails that are blatant and then Penn State will say, oh, they, those didn't mean anything. It was totally fine. And they just, it's like it never happened. Yeah, well, like I say, part of the part of the it goes to the complicity of the so-called higher education system. <laughs> I mean, you know, when Greenpeace foiled the uh, University of Virginia for my emails, the university said, "Yeah, okay, uh, you know, it's going to cost you a few bucks, but you know, tell us exactly what you want." And then when uh, when um, uh, a member of the Virginia House of Delegates, um, Delegate Marshall, uh, says to the university, oh, I'd like to see Mike Mann's emails on, on uh, global climate change. The university says, oh, no, we can't do that. Well, come on. Could you, um, could you imagine a higher level of, of hypocrisy? Yeah, well, I, I'd just like to say, uh, I mean, I'm... I'm I just really want to say thank you to you and, and to the others who stood up because just this idea that it's easy is so preposterous. I mean, it's just the, the way you must, just what I've seen with corporate politics and that kind of thing. I mean, this kind of government politics must just be the worst uh, to deal with and, and hopefully not, not thankless. Well, I don't know whether it's thank, thank, going to be thanked or not, but it is a fact that it's kind of easy to give a lecture on this that people sort of resonate with because they can tell that you're not BSing. Yeah. And it's, it's really striking that, I mean, that just occurs to me when I just reading the different summaries of AR five and the different commentaries, it's just remarkable to me how much more precise and careful the quote deniers are. I mean, which, you know, of course that's a completely right, wrong yeah. term, but you guys are much more careful. Whereas someone like Michael Mann, will just transparently oh, say, I mean, he's he's just essentially, I mean, he lies about the other, I saw him give a lecture at Penn State and he just said, he said, oh, look, there." it was essentially, he showed a graph of, of you know, rising global t- mean temperature anomaly. And he said, see, temperature's rising. The deniers are wrong. Like there's anyone in the world who holds that position. But this is, I mean, I so much appreciate the nuanced and honest views of the quote deniers compared to that kind of. Yeah, well, you know, the the way that it's portrayed popularly, uh, often uh, on television, is that you either think that global warming is the end of the world, or you think that it doesn't exist, and that it's a commie plot. Well, there's a, a third pole, if you will, uh, of informed opinion, uh, which I call lukewarm, and I think I will probably be credited with starting the lukewarm school of global warming, meaning, yes, it's real, yes, people will have something to do with it, and yes, it's not going to kill you. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that in the past couple of years, the lukewarmers. Did, did you originate that? No, no, I don't know who did, but whoever did was very, was very clever. Um, well, 
So, so getting to that, I, I have a more technical question for you. How how legitimate is it that the whole issue of climate is based on this this single number of the global mean temperature anomaly and even the phenomenon of global temperature? Because just as a layman, I don't think of anything in terms of the global temperature, and there it's not a real thing to me. How much of that is a legitimate focus? How much is illegitimate? Well, you really yes, you really don't care what the global mean surface temperature does. You care about what happens around you or around the plants that we live with and depend upon either to for direct nourishment or with the protein processed and concentrated through animals. Um, that's what you care about. And global mean surface temperature is kind of not really that good a metric. What you're interested in is what happens as a result of changes in a local temperature. Uh, and the summation of different local temperatures gives rise to something we call climate, uh, which means that certain features of climate will change if you change all those local temperatures. Yes, they have the effect of changing the global mean surface temperature, but that's really not what you care about. You care about the distribution of energy across the surface of the planet uh, and what that does to weather systems, if anything, Oh, and you also have to remember that the stuff that you're putting in the air that presumably is increasing the temperature of the lower atmosphere also has a way of making plants grow much better. Well, that gets to the, I, I mentioned earlier just offhand the idea of you could do a study, you could do a report on all the positive impacts, and it's no coincidence they haven't done that. What are some of the because well, positive well, 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 impacts? Wait, 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 wait a minute, hold on. Uh, just recently, the NIPCC <laughs> produced its second summary report. That would be translated the acronym as the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of people who basically decided to put out the rest of the story. In other words, what's in the scientific literature that the IPCC either chose to ignore or chose to not uh, examine for its implications. Well, the IPCC science report is 2,000 pages, and the NIPCC science report is 1,200 pages. So far, as far as I'm concerned, at that level of pages, that's not a significant difference. They're both big volumes, so there must be another story to be told. Uh, has that... I saw that there's actually an event in my area about that tomorrow. Has that been f fully released? Uh, it's available. The f overall report, like the uh, IPCC report, I believe is now available online uh, from the Heartland Institute. And um, it's... It's a pretty formidable report. Now, I, the only part that I've been involved with was the chapter on climate models. So I, I wrote a section of that chapter talking about this whole issue of climate sensitivity. Uh, and I mean, I'm not going to talk about my own work. I'm not going to judge it. But I want to tell you the other stuff that was in that chapter was really darn good. All right. Yeah. So everyone, uh, it's at climatechangereconsidered.org. Uh, yep. um, well then, okay. yeah. So the the other big subject I wanted to talk about you just brought up, which is is models. What is 
what is the importance of models in this whole debate and what um, what is the state of that issue? Well, there's a certain notion that says there are two ways to guesstimate how much temperature will change in the future for changing carbon dioxide. One would be to take a look at the past when carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere were higher or lower than they are today. Uh, there was a recent comparison uh, oh, a little over a year ago uh, going back to the, the um, coldest part of the ice age. And from the change in temperature and carbon dioxide between then and now, uh, extrapolating what the sensitivity of temperature to carbon dioxide must be. And by the way, you get a fairly low number. You get about 2.3 degrees. Uh, the UN's number at the time that paper was published was 3.4 degrees, and that's a considerable difference. Um, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to just build a computer model, de novo, uh, and plug in some value because the sensitivity really isn't known from first scientific principles and calculate the temperature change that occurs when CO2 doubles. Now, you would think that would be a straightforward process, right, Alex? You take what the temperature is now, and then you take a look at what it is when carbon dioxide doubles, and that's the warming that you get from CO2. Wrong! Now, what happens, believe it or not, is the all those forecasts that you see, say United States temperature will go up 5 degrees by the time carbon dioxide doubles or something like that, those forecasts are not based between that climate and now. They're based between that climate and subtracted from that is the current climate as simulated on a computer. So not the observations. It's the model with one half the CO2 in it that was in the model with double CO2. One is subtracted from the other. All the warts and moles have been wiped off the creature. So what, I, I can hear your mind is boggled. You didn't know that's what was done, did you? I, I didn't. Don't you think that should be common knowledge in this discussion? Yeah, well, thank God we have you on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, I think it's, I mean, every time I learn about things here, I feel like, why wasn't I told that? That seems a lot more important than a lot of the other stuff I was told, or it often contradicts a lot of the stuff that I was told. Well, I mean, it, it really is a remarkable issue that can, its its existence and the amount of time and attention people pay to it can only be ascribed to politics, not reason. Yeah, that's that's I've always my a little bit I always feel a little bit conflicted even interviewing people because it's it's fascinating in a certain way and yet it distracts from things like hey how do we get more cheaper energy that nobody seems yeah. to care about yeah. that. The biggest environmental problem on the planet is not global warming, it's poverty. I mean, nations that are wealthy, it is acknowledged even by many of the firebrands that nations that are wealthy probably uh, will be little, if at all, affected negatively by changes in temperature of a couple degrees. In fact, uh, there's uh, econometric modeling that suggests that two degrees C of warming is a net benefit economically 
sometime by, by the time I get up to about three and a half degrees C, it turns negative. But that's set so far up the road uh, in terms of time that I think you're kind of silly to try and do something about it from this from this historical vantage. I I read something once. Uh, I didn't really know what to think of it, but the the person said that you know one reason to be more afraid of it, you know average temperature going down than up is that he thinks that we do have ways of cooling the planet in terms of putting particles into space, but that we actually don't have a way of significantly warming the planet. I'm curious what you think of that. No, I think that if you throw enough carbon dioxide in the air, you're going to have a warming of the lower atmosphere and a cooling of the stratosphere. I think that's not particularly disputed. Uh, and if you throw a lot of, of reflective junk into the atmosphere, uh, less solar radiation is going to hit the surface and you're going to uh, have a cooler surface than you would normally have. So those things can be done. Uh, I just don't think that it's a good idea to talk about geoengineering a certain climate. People you know, have a way of kind of by definition, not seeing unforeseen consequences. Mm. Well, that's, that's interesting. But what if, I mean, if there was a if there was a significant problem, uh, I mean, if you take the premise of the Bill McKibbins of the world, the James Hansons of the world, that there is this epic problem, it seems odd not to consider more geoengineering versus just dismantling the energy of industrial civilization as quickly as possible. Geoengineering, to me, would seem least worth investigating. Am I missing something? Well, I think the problem is that we don't really have an understanding, a, a significant, a, a proper understanding of some of the consequences of attempting to cool the atmosphere with aerosols. You, know, you could run computer models and all that, but I'll tell you a little deep, dark secret. Uh, the aerosol temperature effects that come out of computer models uh, sometimes appear in very illogical places that don't seem like they're scientifically defensible. So we don't, we just don't have the knowledge base to do this. And if we did, can you imagine having to write the environmental impact statement, excuse me, can you imagine the wrangling for trans-border pollution issues? Well, you cooled Canada's climate, so their wheat yield dropped by 10%. We think you owe the Canadian taxpayers reparation. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to go there, okay? Yeah, that's true. Well, I also wouldn't want to go with the 85% cut in CO2 emissions. Well, the fact of the matter is that the United States could cut its emissions to zero, and you still wouldn't see any demonstrable effect on global temperature uh, for a long, long time. I think that uh, using a sensitivity of 3 degrees C, which is probably too high, uh, that results in uh, a temperature difference globally of less than two-tenths of a degree from what it would be if the U.S. simply did nothing and continued its current course of emissions. That's because the U.S. is becoming, has become a minor player in global carbon dioxide emissions when compared to China. China used to, you know, not, not very long ago, five, seven years ago, emitted about half as much as we do 
uh, and now, I mean, I'm sorry, about 10 years ago, now they, they're at about uh, 50% more than we emit. So they, they're they going up rapidly, and they're not going to stop. Uh, circling back to the uh, the evasion of, of uh, at least a summary for policymakers of the the more recent temperature data, uh, one thing that I've seen in in defense of that, and, and that I even saw a little bit in the report, is this idea that, oh, well, actually we're vindicated because it's all in the oceans, which I never heard five years ago, the, but the oceans are suddenly the the key, not the atmosphere. This, this is like uh, a replay of Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, a very famous book first published in 1962, reprinted uh, infinite number of times. It talks about the way that science works. Uh, Kuhn asserts that scientists believe in overarching logical uh, and dynamic structures that are called paradigms, uh, and they spend their lives uh, trying to prove that the paradigm is working uh, eventually because that's what happens. The paradigm falls flat on its face, and there's something called a scientific revolution. Well, I think that's what you're dealing with in climate change. Can you apply that directly to the issue of the oceans? Sure. Uh, and when the paradigm starts to fall apart, uh, Kuhn notes that increasingly bizarre and ornate explanations are are given for why there's something wrong here, rather than abandoning the paradigm. And the, the idea that the warming is in the deep ocean is pretty cool, because if it all of a sudden got into the deep ocean, it would have had to have gotten from the surface to the deep ocean, and you should have been able to track it. But that's never been done. This is called, and then a miracle occurred, the science. And by the way, if it's way down in the deep ocean, may I offer you a two-word summary of the issue? Uh-huh. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be a very positive development if it turned out that arbitrarily above this threshold, everything would go into the deep ocean? Uh, yeah, they ought to be careful of using this as the excuse. <laughs> Uh, I mean, these. it seems like just about the most remote environmental consequence imaginable. You have to understand how much deep ocean there is. Uh, you know, to disperse, uh, say, a degree's worth of warming, surface temperature warming, uh, into the deep ocean gives you a deep ocean warming of um, a few thousandths of a degree. There's a lot of water down there. That's fascinating. Can you elaborate? How much of it is the nature of water and how much of it is just the volume of water? It's because water has a much larger heat capacity. It takes more energy to to warm uh, water than it does land. And um, so if you take the energy that created a land warming and disperse it into the surface is only nominally within a 1,000 feet of the surface is what we call the surface temperature. And that's air. Water is thousands of feet in depth with a very high heat capacity. So that one degree uh, distributed over that very large area within the ocean becomes a few thousandths of a degree. Yeah, that's fascinating. That wasn't mentioned in any of the summaries that I no that I read. No. Um, 
So one more incentives question. What about the incentives of the the general public and the people one might meet in everyday life where they'll say, are you a denier? And they, they, they have that incredible partisanship and assuredness uh, about this issue that certainly isn't changing too much despite... Well, I would, I would argue that the bottom line to that is that talk is cheap. And when actions are committed, the consequences to those who commit the actions have been pretty severe. There have been three national governments or national government leaders uh, in Australia that have uh, lost their jobs as a result of espousing cap-and-trade or carbon tax schemes. Uh, The U.S. House of Representatives in 2010 switched from a Democratic majority to a Republican majority. 65 seats changed hands. largely over the issue of cap-and-trade. The reason you can say that is because all the close House races that year were lost by a Democrat who voted for cap-and-trade, virtually all of them, while in the Senate, virtually all the close races were won by the Democrats. What was the difference between the House and the Senate? The House passed cap-and-trade. The Senate didn't even bother to consider it. Don't blame health care legislation because they both voted for that. Uh, what, I mean, what about in in Europe? What's your analysis of that in terms of the the political fate of people in Germany, Germany and Spain? Well, seen as Angela Merkel, German uh, Chancellor or Prime Minister, um, uh, Angela Merkel is was was is I don't know how you say it an East German politician from before. the the wall came down. And so she was very statist. She actually wrote uh, much of the framework convention on climate change, which is what gave rise to the Kyoto Protocol. And now she's running away. Uh, She she realizes that these global warming policies aren't producing very much power at all. You know, the, the solar energy and windmills just aren't doing it. And they have to get away from that. So she's she's now sponsoring the production of new coal-fired power plants. This is the same person who was involved in writing the climate change treaty to begin with. Does that tell you something? Yeah, I've I've followed that. I mean, in terms of the action, I, although I haven't seen her her rationalization for that. I mean, how how are they publicly justifying the fact that they're increasing their CO2 because emissions? industry industry is leaving Europe because their energy prices are so high because of their commitment to inefficient, expensive, ineffective renewables like solar energy and wind. wind. So this leads to... Oh, go ahead. And when, and when that happens, you know, that's, that's governments usually respond when something like that happens. And so that's what you're seeing. So that, that seems to be cause for optimism. And there seems to be some, I mean, something in the public reaction to the new report in terms of a better reaction that seems to be more cause for optimism. Well, this report, there are not as many breathless news stories following this fifth assessment report as there were following the fourth assessment report, which came out in 2007. Um, It tells me that, that maybe the press and people are tired being told the world's come to an end or is coming to an end and they realize that their life expectancy is going up and up 
and certain financial hiccups notwithstanding. Uh, people have generally been becoming wealthier. Um, all the while, the surface temperature might have gone up some. I think people, I think people do get tired of this. You know, by my best count, I have lived through six ends of the world from various environmental causes. Um, population bomb, the ozone hole, global cooling, you name it, they're all there. Uh, and living through that many ends of the world teaches one to kind of go short on apocalypse futures. <laughs> that, uh, Besides, I, I, if they're right, it doesn't matter. You're not going to be around to get paid off anyway. Yeah, that's a... That's a... There must be this seems like some sort of uh, variation of Pascal's wager, a reversal of, of, of Pascal's wager. Yeah, I like uh, I like that going, yeah. going short on. Um, so it seems like in general ca- cause for optimism. Well, uh, I, the Australian election last month in September was really stunning. And they, I mean, that election was pretty much purely about their carbon tax. And the labor government lost, and they lost big. Yeah, well, it, it's I'm 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 really glad, and and with that, I would just say again, thanks to you and everyone else who's who stood up, because for sure, for sure, if that hadn't happened, uh, I don't think we would be seeing uh, the better interpretations, and especially with the web, because of what you and Dick Lindsay and others have done it can be distributed to so many people. And there's, there's now a much more mainstream view that there's something a little bit crazy about this view that we need to shut down everything because like some right. amount of CO2 is in the air. And that's, that's great. I, I, I do agree with you that, that um, the internet really has been key uh, in shaping this issue in getting out um, diverse points of view and um, encouraging people to, judge which arguments hold more water, if you will, which arguments are most internally consistent. It is my humble opinion that the lukewarm one is the one that will carry the day. All right. Well, where can people go on the web to learn more about you and the lukewarm argument? Well, you can go to www.cato.org and just start paging through my name or uh, Chip Knappenberger, K-N-A-P-P-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R, you can look him up. He works with me at the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute, and uh, you will find everything you need to see. And if, if we didn't say it, we'll tell you where to go find it. All right. Thanks again, Pat, for all your work and for coming on the show. Okay, Alex. Have a good day. All right. You too. Thanks again to Pat Michaels for being on the show. I want to stress this idea that I raised that the people like Pat and Richard Lindzen and really a handful of others who stood up to the attack on science that is the catastrophic global warming or catastrophic climate change movement are people we should be incredibly grateful to. We've discussed over the last two episodes how it's not an easy thing at all to stand up to this movement because it has so much political power and because when there's a movement with political power and then a lot of funding and a lot of support in the media and it has this monopoly position and you're just somebody in academia trying to do your job, it's not at all trivial to stand up. 
but it is necessary to stand up, and those who have stood up deserve our gratitude. So I don't know whether Pat would want me to have you do this, but I think it would be appropriate to write to him. I'm sure it's easy to find his email address online. I won't give it out here. You know, write to him at Cato, write to Dick Lindzen, Richard Lindzen at MIT, and just you know, thank them for their work because it, it hasn't been easy work. It's portrayed as easy work. It's portrayed as, oh yeah, you just are getting hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from these uh, these companies. And that's that's the opposite of the truth. The people doing this are remarkable independent individuals. And another example is I think Willie Soon, the scientist who, he's great in terms of just every presentation, he describes himself as independent scientist. He doesn't focus on affiliation, even though he works at Harvard. He focuses on, I'm an independent scientist. I'm going to give you evidence. I'm going to give you reasoning. Judge for yourself. And encourages everybody to be an independent thinker. So thanks to Pat. Thanks to Richard Lindzen. Thanks to Willie Soon. Thanks to a handful of others for doing this. And there are, there are more of you. And as Pat said, we have the internet on our side, which is just a tremendous resource. So thanks also to everyone who's used the internet to spread the right ideas. And if we keep pushing forward, we keep standing for science, and also we keep standing for industrial progress, uh, we, will, we will prevail. That's it for this week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure... As always, to go to our website, industrialprogress.com. We've been blogging a lot uh, lately, so there's all sorts of goodies there. Uh, Facebook.com slash The Pursuit of Energy is my page. Facebook.com slash I Love Fossil Fuels is the I Love Fossil Fuels uh, page. Hopefully you will like both of those. Next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great show, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.